All right, well, good morning. Oh, you didn't sound very excited about this last weekend of summer. Good morning to all, and thank you if you're an American worker. This is your holiday, right? This is your weekend, Labor Day, Labor Day. So tomorrow, don't labor any, but be ready to work hard. We need you to build our economy and uh, do all those good things that we want to do as a country. Aren't you thankful for a job? <clears throat> thankful for a job? Uh, or the prospect of a job? Or somebody in your life has a job? That's what we really want, right? Somebody in my life has a job. That way I can take it easy. <laughs> hey, uh, I want to say uh, thanks uh, to Brian. Brian's not here. I think he stepped over the line a little bit there. We're talking about Ohio State and his... Uh, intro video, but we'll deal with that privately. Um, and uh, Brian's doing a great job. Luke, Luke's doing a great job. Aubrey and Piper. Luke, by the way, is the only one here this weekend. So everybody else took the weekend off. So Luke is holding down the fort. I got to go to a high school football game on Friday night. Anybody at the Winfield game Friday night? Winfield uh, High School and Herbert Hoover. I tell you, I went to see the game, but I was absolutely brought to tears. No kidding. It doesn't take a whole lot now as I get older, but brought to tears at the marching band in their halftime presentation. And we have a young man in our church right here, Aiden Ballengall, who is a part of that marching band. If you see Aiden or his family, Matt and Betsy, uh, give them a pat on the back. What an incredible performance. It was a... Uh, a, a a tribute to the 911 uh, responders, the 911 uh, things that happened, and we're coming up on 20 years, as most of you know. But I thought I'd say that today because Aiden, we love seeing young people involved and and uh, getting out there and using their gifts out in the community. And I hope you'll encourage that with the young people in your life. Well, I'm Pastor Dave, and normally I'm in St. Albans. Today I'm here, and what a blessing to be here with my wife and um, sharing with you today. And if you're a guest today, thanks for being here. You may have started coming after the last time I was here. I try to get here five, every five to six weeks, and it is a privilege and a blessing uh, to be here today. We're in a series, week six of this series. We're going to go a couple more even because it's so good. There's such good stuff in here. Uh, faith with doubt. And what we're saying here in this series is an acknowledgement that you can have faith and still have doubt. There are some people that have doubt that aren't people of faith. You know, people like atheists, evolutionists, and some of the scientific community and people out there. They, their, their doubts come from a different place. And our job is not to argue with them about the existence of God and all these things. It's really to pray that the gospel would seep into their heart. That the Holy Spirit would work with the gospel to convert them to Jesus Christ. What we're talking about here are Christians, believers with faith who also experience doubt. And there's lots of places in the Bible where we see this happening. And we know this is true because many of us here have doubt. We have doubted things. And what we're talking about specifically in this series are the conditions that create fertile ground for doubt. And if that doubt isn't dealt with in the right way, then it can lead to an abandonment of the faith. It can lead to discouragement, depression, an abandonment of the faith, an abandonment of 
the church. Now, I want you to know, understand, that as believers in Jesus, as believers in the Bible, as a part of the church, we are always swimming upstream. We're always living our lives counterculturally. I don't know if you're experiencing this, but you should be. If you're not experiencing this, it may be because you're too much going with the flow instead of fighting upstream. And that's one thing we need to be careful of in the American church as American Christians is that we're not just going with the flow. So as believers, we're always working upstream. Last week we talked about an incident in the life of Jesus where his disciples had kind of put their faith on a shelf. You know, they had seen all these miraculous things, incredible things, but when the storm came, they were afraid. He woke up from his nap. I'm going to tell you to do that here in a little bit. He's got this. He woke up from his nap and said, where's your faith? I know you have faith and you're having a problem. Now's the time to use your faith with this problem. So their growth had been stalled and that can create, when your faith is on a shelf, that can create fertile ground for doubt. Today we're going to go a little bit deeper. We're going to go a little bit broader and we're going to talk about not just uh, stalled growth from a storm, we're going to talk about devastated dreams. Devastated dreams, what I'm referring to is it's your life, you had it planned out, you had things going in a certain direction, but uh, you hit a bend in the road, a bump in the road, a curveball came at you, and now all of a sudden things aren't the way you expected. In fact, you may be dealing with something very difficult. Now in this series, what we've seen is that doubt can arise from two or three or four different places. For instance, doubt can be, uh, it, can, it can stem from the mind. You know, we can, uh, we can have mental problems with the story or with the gospel. And so our mind, you know, we have to, what do we do for that? We, we have to search for the evidence. We have to look for the truth. We have to study the Bible. There are answers to the questions of the mind. There are answers about the existence of God, about the historicity of Jesus, that he was a real person in a historical setting, about the validity and the integrity of the Bible, that we can trust it, we can believe it, uh, about the fact that morality and your conscious, conscience, you are conscious, right? Your conscience has to come from somewhere, and it doesn't just evolve, it comes from God. The very fact that you believe this is right and this is wrong, that comes from somewhere. So uh, a doubt of the mind requires a little deeper study and some search for the evidence. And they're out there. There's also doubts that stem from the will. These are what we call volitional or decision doubts. They're doubts that say, you know, I, I know this is true. I'm just not going to live by this. We've told you repeatedly over, I don't know how long, that in any given church, seven out of ten, you see all those people that left here just a while ago? And I hope that's not a fictive term for uh, they're leaving the church. Those young people that just got up, statistically, historically, seven out of ten of them, even though they're in the back room now and they're uh, involved and active in the church, 70% of them within six months of graduating high school, will have left the church. And some of them have left, will have left their faith 
Why is that? Some of it's because they go to a college or university where the professor says what you've believed, what you've been taught is garbage, it's fairy tales, it doesn't make sense, you need to throw that out, you need to come over to the atheistic side, the skeptic side. But some of it, I believe, is also a volitional thing. It's their deciding. You know, I know what I was taught. I know what I believe. I just want to try this out for a while. I want to live this life. I want to, I want to walk away from God and serve myself. I want, to, I want to do what I want to do. And I think that's a, that's a doubt of the will. It's a doubt of the will. The way to deal with this is to make a commitment, to teach them all that we can and to, and to encourage them to keep their commitment to the Lord. Again, 70% of our young people, I don't know if you're a math person, I don't know if you think about things on that kind of a scale, but the church, the American church, cannot withstand this kind of a mass exodus and, and still be a viable institution or a viable uh, organism, organization, whatever you want to call it, in our society. And so we got to do something. But today's doubt is not, uh, today, the condition I'm going to talk about today doesn't come from the mind, and it doesn't come from the will, it comes from the heart. And this is a tough one. It's a tough one because a Doubt that stems from that deep emotional place in your life cannot be studied away and it cannot be decided away. It has to be dealt with a little bit differently. And, and we're going to talk about that today. You know, my favorite Maya Angelou quote is this one. I bet you've heard this. She said, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. And that's so true. Some of you are dealing with emotional scars and wounds in your life right now from way back. You know, whoever said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, was a liar. He was a liar. Because bones can heal and, you know, we can, we can learn to adjust and adapt. But man, those things deep down in our heart seem to fester, seem to stay there. And we can, many of us, get angry, become bitter, can walk away from a relationship, walk away from everything we know is true, walk away from the church, walk away from God because of how I feel. Now, I want to reiterate something I've said many times in the past. Regardless of how you feel and how I feel, Regardless of how the preacher made me feel, or the church made me feel, or a teacher, or even a parent, God's Word remains the same. God's Word remains the same, and it does not change based on our feelings. How we respond to it may come from our feelings, but that's why we have to speak the truth in love. But our Feelings, our emotional self, aren't just affected by the people around us. They're, they're affected by situations in our life. I heard about a father talking to his pastor. He and his wife had raised three children who were all grown, married, with families of their own, and successful in their career, careers. But none of them had a love for the Lord. None of them were involved in the, a local church. 
And he said to his pastor, he said, as I get older and I look at my family, the question that keeps haunting me is, was I really a good father? All my kids are successful, but none of them have what really matters. And that's agony, isn't it? One man was reviewing his life. He had never married, although he craved companionship. And he told his friend, he said, you know, uh, or rather he told his pastor, he said, I, I have many friends, but I am not the most important person in anybody's life. I think about a woman, a wife, who had been there for all her friends. Every time they had a baby, every time their family grew, she was there for them. She celebrated with them. She rejoiced with them. Every new child that came in to the world, into their family, she celebrated and rejoiced, but she never personally has been able to carry a baby to term. I know parents who prayed for a child and got one, only to lose that child to a teenage tragedy, an accident. I think about a couple who are looking forward to their retirement years, looking forward to traveling and enjoying a little bit of, of, uh, of, of time together, visiting grandkids, seeing things they hadn't seen, and spending some of that money their kids were expecting one day, uh, only to have one of them come down with some illness or be diagnosed with something. And, and now all their future plans were kind of put in, uh, in a bad place. It was kind of iffy now. I think about a teenager who she feels like an outsider. She's trying to do the right thing, but she, she just doesn't fit in. She doesn't make friends. She doesn't have friends. And she constantly takes pokes and jabs to her character and her reputation. And now, every night, she has suicidal ideations. And her parents are worried about her. And you could add situation to situation to situation to this list. We're rolling down the road, the highway of life, everything's peachy, it's all good. And all of a sudden, there's a bump in the road or a bend in the road. And now everything's different. Everything's changed. Life didn't turn out the way we wanted it to. And we find ourselves, because of this turn, you know, sometimes... On the road, you'll see these <clears throat> signs, like it's funny to me in the south where maybe the, it's just barely a curve, but they put up these signs, you know, turn, 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 all the way down through there so that you can see them. And sometimes people, I guess, don't see them, and they end up in this deep ravine. And it's emotionally a ravine of personal pain and shattered dreams and hopelessness and then doubt moves in. And then before you know it, they're bitter, and they don't have anything to do with God. And they might believe in God, but they hate the God they believe in because of what he allowed them to go through. You know, last week I said, I believe there are storms that God allows us to go into, and there are some storms that God leads us into. And it's hard for us to know which is which, but that's not the point. The point is that whatever storm we're in, God works all things, is able to work all things together for what? For good, if we'll let him. Well, that might be your story. You may have hit a bend in the road or a bump in the road. And let me tell you something. If this ever happens to you, and I should say when this happens to you, because it'll happen to you. I mean, your life might be just rolling. It's coming. 
It's coming. You either just came out of a storm, you're in a storm, or you're headed for a storm. It's coming. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when it comes? That's Jeremiah's story. So if you've got a Bible, you've turned to Jeremiah. If you found him, Jeremiah is known as the... Here's a little Bible for you, okay? He's known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was a weeper. He was crying. He wept for himself. He wept for his people. He wept for uh, what, what God was doing in the world and for his whole world. Well, let's start at the beginning in chapter 1, starting with verse 4. Jeremiah says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, don't say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Now what an incredible calling this was. If you and I had lived back in this day, it would have been an incredible thing for God to say, I have hand-selected you for this task, for this job. I have called you to be a prophet. A lot of young Jewish boys no doubt looked up to Elijah and Elisha and people like Moses and Daniel, and they wanted to be like them. And so Jeremiah was getting that. He was, he was hand-picked by God, even while still in the womb, to be his mouthpiece. But there's a problem here. There's a problem. We're going to talk about the problems in his life. And the first problem is that he had the burden of an unpopular message. He was chosen to speak for God. And this is an incredible thing. We, we're not sure how this worked. We, we don't know exactly how a prophet spoke from God. Did he, did he go into a trance or something that you might see, you know, a depiction on TV? Or did God just put it in his heart and it just flowed out of him? We don't know exactly how God did this, but we know it was a special thing. It was a special thing and we... In my opinion, we don't have this anymore. We don't have this anymore. Now that we have the completed word of God, we don't need this anymore because God has spoken. What we have now are preachers who make mistakes and people who say things that aren't quite right. Have you ever heard a preacher make a mistake? I hope you have uh, because you probably will today before you leave here. Uh, we, that's who we are. We're, we're, we, we're speaking for God, but we don't always get it right. And I just love the people who remind us of that after the service. <clears throat> and that's fine as long as it's done in love, right? But he had an unpopular message to share. In chapter 19 of Jeremiah, God told Jeremiah, I want you to take the city leaders on a tour of the city. I want you to take them out to this place called the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. And that's where I want you to give them the message. Now, I don't know how much you know <clears throat> of the of the Bible and the connection between all these places in the Old Testament. But the Valley of Ben-Hinnom was, was kind of a ravine outside the city of Jerusalem where they dumped their trash. 
It was a trash pit. It was always burning and smoldering. It was a deep ravine, evidently. And uh, Jeremiah 7.31 says it was also a place where some of the kings of Judah had sacrificed their children to the false god Moloch. They made him pass through the fire. And you can read that in Jeremiah 7.31. Kings like Manasseh and Ammon and some others. And so, not only was this a trash pit, it became kind of a dumping ground for dead bodies. Always burning, it was a stinky place, and it was not a place anybody wanted to stay for very long. I mean, you get rid of your trash and you get out of there. In uh, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 33, Isaiah referred to this place as a pyre of fire. A pyre of fire. A burning place, because it was always burning. They were trying to get rid of it. It was always burning. And if you made a connection already, and some of you have, you know that in the New Testament, when Jesus referred to hell, and by the way, Jesus talked more about hell than he did any other topic, more about hell than any other single topic. And when he referred to hell, oftentimes he would use the word that refers to the valley of Ben-Hinnom. It was the word Gehenna. For instance, in Mark chapter 9, in verses 43 to 48, Jesus said, If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your feet cause you to sin, cut them off. It would be better for you to go through life maimed or, with, or blind than it would for you to spend eternity in Gehenna, in hell. And it, immediately the people would think, Oh, gee, I don't want to go there. That's that trash place. And it became such an incredibly terrible place that it began to be associated in Jewish theology with the mouth of hell. The Jewish rabbis, when they referred to hell, they referred to this place. That's why Jesus did it. It, it, it was believed that that's where you got into hell. Right there is where you went through. That was at the bottom of that junk was the doorway to hell. It was a terrible place. Jesus said it's a place where the worms that eat them do not die. And the fire is not quenched. So this is the place, the edge of this is where God told Jeremiah, take these guys out there and I want you to give them a message. If they hadn't suspected the message was going to be bad before they got there, when they got there, they're probably like, this is not going to be good. Let's get out of here. It stinks here. Their nostrils told them to get out of there. Now the Lord also told Jeremiah, when you take these leaders on a tour, I want you to take a clay pot. And when you, when you give them this message, I want you to break this clay pot for effect. Verse 10, 1910. Give them the message, then break the jar while those who go with you are watching. And say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will smash this nation and the city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. Verse 15. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, listen, I am going to bring on this city and all the villages around it every disaster I pronounced against them because they were stiff-necked and would not listen to my words. Now don't you think Jeremiah is probably thinking, come on God, I would much rather have preached a message called 10 keys for a happy life or 10 steps to success. Why did you give me this message? You gave me a terrible message. A terrible message. Do you see any... And, and, I, and I, before I ask you this, I'm afraid that we in the American church, and I'll put me and we, preachers have done our people a disservice 
by not sharing the whole gospel. We like the good of the good news, but did you know there's the bad of the bad of the good news? The good is that, yeah, Jesus came, he gave his life for us, he died for us so that we might spend eternity in heaven with him. But the very fact that it's called good news means that there's also bad news. And the bad news is if you reject the gospel, like so many have, if you turn around and walk away from God like the rich young ruler or so many others in their life, if you choose to do your own thing, to live your own life, to please yourself in life, then there is a place reserved for you that was initially made for the devil and his angels. God didn't want anybody to go there. He made this place for the devil and his angels, but people who reject him and reject the message will also spend an eternity there where the fire is not quenched and the worm never dies. Our message is an unpopular message, isn't it? The gospel is unpopular, and if you think Think for a minute that by becoming a Christian, you got out of the responsibility to share not just the good, good news, but the bad, good news. Then you're mistaken. But I'm afraid it's not your fault. I'm afraid it's my fault and other preachers who we've concentrated more on the good part of the good news than the bad because nobody wants to come to church and hear about hell and sulfur and worms that never die. None of your friends and neighbors want to hear you say they're going to hell if they don't change their life. I mean, it is not a popular message, is it? And if you think I'm wrong, just start tweeting out stuff like that. I don't know how you tweet in love. Maybe you can put hearts on every other word. But it's still not going to be received very well. And that leads me to the second thing that Jeremiah experienced. That was the response of a sinful generation. As soon as the word got out about his message, as soon as the word got out that Jeremiah was up there on that hillside preaching that doom is coming to Jerusalem, that we're going to be destroyed like a clay pot, he's going to smash us, the temple leaders got upset. They said, wait a minute, we can't have somebody out there preaching this negative message. We can't have a doomsdayer, a naysayer out there preaching, go get that boy and bring him in here. He's going to upset people. He's going he's to really cause an uproar here. And so the Bible says in chapter 20, when the priest Pashur, son of Immer, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. So for the next 24 hours, a beaten, bruised, bloodied, defeated Jeremiah is sitting with all the other riffraff, the criminals, at the gate there. And it was common for them to do this. This was a deterrent. This was a crime deterrent. And it was perfectly legal to walk by these guys who were in stocks and chains and give them a good kick in the ribs or spit on them or throw some rotten tomatoes or rotten food or your garbage on them. Whatever you wanted to do to them, this was their punishment. This was what they were there for. You know, if you hang somebody on a cross and put it out publicly, it's a pretty good deterrent to crime. But if you put them up in a luxury hotel and give them three squares every day and let them get an education, there's something wrong, isn't there? I tell you, Pasher was doing this right, even though Pasher was wrong. He was wrong. 
Now the next day he let Jeremiah go, and Jeremiah, you can read this in chapter 20, he, had a, he, had a, he gave Pasher a piece of his mind. He didn't let up, he didn't relent. He told him what he thought and what was going to not just happen to the city, not just happen to the nation, but it's going to happen to your life now, buddy. He told him that. I love Jeremiah's, I love his uh, gumption, you know. I love his, uh, his passion here. And, uh, and then he went back to his house. And he went into his bedroom, and that's when it broke down. You know, I've experienced this personally as a chaplain. I've seen guys who are in the fight, you know, especially, and I'm not bringing this up for any other reason than it just came to my mind. In Afghanistan, we had SF soldiers who were in a fight, and one of them almost lost his life. They were shot up and all this stuff. And, and, and during that time, they were strong. They were strong. They fought back. They did what their training taught them to do. They did their job. It was after. It's after they get back. And they have time to process and think about what they just went through. And how closely they came to losing their life. And how much their family means to them. And all these things that are happening that they break down, they lose it. You know, I went to Iraq with guys who, uh, you know, we went through the same stuff. We were on a fob, uh, mortar rounds came in, didn't come close to really anybody, but it came closer to some than others. And uh, we came back and we, you know, when you, when you demobilize, you have to go through all the processes. You got to go see the mental health people and the medical people and you got to make sure you're okay. So we, before we let you go, we got to make sure we're taking care of you if we, if we don't want to release you if you got problems. And a lot of these guys, we found out, you know, as a chaplain, I'm like interested in this kind of stuff and I had my finger on this. 10 or 12 or 15 guys who were, were saying, I can't cope with this. They had PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And you, I'm like, Wait a minute, I went through the same stuff you did, and I'm, I'm fine. Everybody handles this differently. Everybody handles it differently. You know, when you're deployed or you're away like that, it feels like you're, you're, you're stuck and your life is running by you. Your kids are having birthdays. Your wife's celebrating an anniversary. She's doing things with her friends, and just life is rushing by, and here you are stuck doing this. And so it creates anxiety and tension on top of everything else you've got to worry about while you're in a combat zone. And when you come back, man, you're trying to catch up. You don't want things to be different. You want things to be the way they were, but they're, they're not the same. They're different. And you've got to jump back in there and you've got to get on board. And I can remember sitting in an elders meeting with our elders right after I had gotten back and... and um, I remember lashing out at, at our elders. Chris, I don't know if you were there. You might have been there at that meeting. And I, I, things weren't going the way I thought they should go. And I thought, man, we've, I've wasted all this time, and you guys have been here. And this. And I, I really think I experienced a little bit of PTSD there. And so I think this is what's going on with Jeremiah. I think this is what's happening to him. He was strong in the fight. He was sitting up strong there when people were spitting on him and throwing at him. He, he gave it hard back to Pasher, but when he got back into the privacy of his home, into his bedroom, he lost it. It's like, God, is this what I'm doing? You gave me this job, and look, people hate me. Listen to what he said. You deceived me. 
Lord, and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. In other words, you made me do this. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. You know, he's just preaching the message. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say, I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name. In other words, if I just shut up. His word is in my heart like a fire. A fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispering, terror on every side. In other words, some scholars believe that that became his nickname, terror. Denounce him. Let's denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. Wow. That's pretty serious. You talk about suffering with personal pain and the devastated dreams. This is what he's going through. And the people of his day, even the religious leaders rejected him. Now, let me tell you something, folks. Right now, if you're a Christ follower, you are called, and I am called, to stay. Stand up in an immoral culture, to work our way upstream, to speak out to a sinful generation, to live out our lives in a way that's peculiar, that's different than the rest of the world. We are not called to be caught up in the flow and just be washed downstream. We're not called to look like everybody else and act like everybody else and talk like everybody else and respond like everybody else. We're called to, to go upstream, to be different. And and that's not easy. That's why we need each other. No one should stand alone in this upstream battle. But Jeremiah wasn't finished. If you thought that was bad, listen to what he says. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. There's no happy birthday to Jeremiah. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning, a battle cry at noon, for he did not kill me in the womb, with my mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? Well, he's talking about abortion right there. Kill me in my mother's womb. I know you never thought of using that as a proof text for being a pro-life person, but that's a great one. Because God said, I chose you from your mother's womb. Jeremiah said, I wish you had killed me in my mother's womb. Is this okay? Is this all right to talk to God like this? I, I think it's normal. I think if you go through that kind of a tragic, traumatic thing, I, I think that's normal. It reminds me of the life of Jonah a little bit. You know, Jonah ran from God because of the message he had, but in Jonah's case, he thought the people would believe it and, the, and repent, and he didn't want that. Jeremiah's like, I've got this message, and the people hate it. You and I have a message. Now, you may have noticed I skipped over verses 10 to 13. Let's read them right now because some liberal scholars believe that this chapter is out of place, that this should be at the end of the chapter, and it just kind of got mixed up in the copying and the translation and all that stuff. But I, I, know, I think it fits right where it is. Jeremiah says, But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior, so my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. 
They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord. Give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. I think these verses are right where they ought to be. Because isn't that the way you experience life? This is what we call the turmoil of a believer's heart. It's sometimes I'm, I'm down, rejected, felt used and betrayed like Jeremiah. And then there's a glimmer of hope and I'm back there in the fight and I say, Lord, we can do this. And then something triggers my addiction or something triggers my brain and I fall right off again. And I'm back down in the pit. I'm right back down there and, and I'm struggling. And you know, this turmoil should continually drive us not to doubt and fear, but to our knees. What's the antidote for this? You remember the old song, Tell It to Jesus? Tell it to Jesus. You see, before God told Jeremiah to take the clay pot and break it, in chapter 18, he sent him down to the potter's house. Jeremiah went to the potter's house, and God said, I just want you to watch. I just want you to look and see what's happening. Jeremiah said he saw the potter. He was making a pot, making a bowl, and the clay kind of was marred. And so instead of making what he wanted to make, he made something else. And it was just as good, just as useful, just as beautiful. And God told Jeremiah, he said, don't you see this is you and me? I'm the potter. You're the clay. And your life may not have been what you dreamed it would be when you were a kid growing up in Sabbath school. It might not have been all that you hoped it would be as you were preparing your way in the world. He said, but it's exactly what I want it to be. And I am still working on you and shaping you. And this nation, it's not turning out the way we wanted, but we're going to bring something good out of it. We're going to bring a Messiah out of it. I am the potter. You are the clay. Remember the old song we used to sing, the other one? Have thine own way, Lord. How many of you remember that one? Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still, still. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Search me and try me, master today. Whiter than snow, Lord, wash me just now, as in thy presence humbly I bow. Have thine own way, Lord. You know, even as I read these words, I can hear my grandmother singing. Have thine own way, hold o'er my being, absolute sway. Filled with thy spirit till all can see, Christ only always living in me. That's our prayer too, isn't it? Even in the devastated dreams of our life, the bends in the road, the bumps in the road. That's what we want. We want people to see Jesus in us. Would you stand up with me now as the band comes up and gets ready? We're going to close with prayer. I'm going to pray for whatever storm you're headed into, whatever bend of life is coming your way, that you'll stand strong. You can have times of collapse and times of of, uh, you know, devastation. That's why we need each other. 
so we can get back up and keep going. Lord, thank you so much for this message, for the life of Jeremiah. We thank you, God, that you helped him get through this time. I pray, Father, that you would be there for us, and not just us as individuals, but us as a church and us as a nation. I pray, God, that you would do something good from what is going on around us in our lives, in our families, in our nation. That's our prayer. That's our hope. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to talk about a decision or if you have a decision, come and talk as we sing.